Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck Toll Free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Big trouble in North Korea, the commander-in-chief says. That's That's what will happen if they step out of line. Big, big trouble in North Korea. That was just... Moments before I came on air here from the president himself, he's at a press conference, giving a press conference with Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley, and he's not backing down a bit on his rhetoric when it comes to North Korea. In fact, uh, he has said that Kim, well, he said that they are locked and loaded. He said there will be fire and fury. And then he said, well, we're locked and loaded for North Korea. And then he also said that Kim Jong-un, if he utters a threat, well, let me let you hear it from the president himself. This man will not get away with what he's doing, believe me. And if he utters one threat in the form of of an overt threat, which, by the way, he has been uttering for years and his family has been uttering for years, or if he does anything with respect to Guam, or any place else that's an American territory or an American ally, he will truly regret it. And he will regret it fast. There you have it. President Trump not messing around on this issue, speaking plainly. I don't I don't know what it's going to take for the media to seem to get the memo here. But when they say that the policy should be any Military action by North Korea should be met with annihilation. And then they complain that Trump is saying fire and fury. I mean, at at what point is this just a a, a difference of really nothing other than word choice? Uh, I think that Trump understands that North Korea has been swindling us for a long time, swindling the whole world, really. But the U.S. and and, uh, the nations that have been trying to work with us to get this militaristic, hyper-jingoistic, ethno-nationalist, fascist kleptocracy to finally stop being so dangerous to its neighbors, to stop its provocative actions, and to not build miniaturized or small enough uh, nuclear weapons that they can go on top of an intercontinental ballistic missile, ICBM, uh, it hasn't been working. So Trump is taking a different approach. I know we've been talking about it a lot this week. I will also say to you that we, this is a problem. It needs to be addressed. We should be aware of it. But it's also not one that we should become uh, paranoid about, meaning I'm seeing people who are, they're reaching out to me and they seem deeply worried about whether we're about to go to war with North Korea. I think the answer to that, look, we could go to war any day with any number of countries. We could be hit with a first strike by Russia. We could be hit by the Chinese. We could, you know, I know I sound like I'm writing a script for Red Dawn 3 here, or I guess there was a remake of Red Dawn, so it would be Red Dawn 2. Uh, But that's possible. And it is possible that we will have a, 
a, I, I don't like to say military exchange, but I can't think of a better, because short of all-out war, I don't know what we would call it, but I think it's possible that would happen. I think it's very, very unlikely. Um, I think that that would be a, a shock at this juncture, and we don't need to be worried about it, but we need to be vigilant about it. We should be serious about this discussion, and we should be looking at what will happen. I mean, like, Trump's not the only one who's talking uh, talking tough on this issue. I mean, you know, you got Lindsey Graham out there who's also getting in on this action. If we have to, we'll go to war. I don't want to, but if we have to, we'll go to war. He's not going to stop until somebody makes him stop. If he continues to threaten our country, that's the end of him and his regime. So, yeah. The credible threat of force, which is what so much of our diplomacy is based on, means just that. That if somebody does something that we think is a threat to our national security, if they come after us, we're going to crush them. That's why we have... This military that we have, that's that's what the, uh, what is it, $600 billion a year Pentagon budget? I mean, th- this is what we're, this is what we are prepared for. If somebody threatens us, if somebody threatens the United States, the security of its citizens, the security of this nation, we're going to crush them. Th- this, is, this is not uh, something that should all of a sudden shock the left. And as I have to say, when you look at how... Angry they've been for many months now about Russia and how willing they are to, which Russia, by the way, has a much more serious military with a much greater uh, nuclear capability than anything North Korea's got, as well as who knows what else the Russians have stashed away in terms of, you know, WMD or whatever. Who knows? Russia's got so much more military might and packed so much more of a punch and has invaded Countries. In fact, I will have someone joining us later on in the show today who is out there covering on the front lines a stealth invasion of Ukraine by Russia. Uh, But Russia is so much more of a true military threat. And yet the Democrats basically want Donald Trump to show up, take off his glove, slap Putin across the face and challenge him to a duel or something. I mean, it's just insane. It's insane what they're suggesting. They just want so much of a, uh, they, they want so much anger and and frustration to be directed towards Russia, and nothing constructive can be done there at all. And now when Trump is actually trying to stare down North Korea, they're like, oh my gosh, North Korea, well, what, what's he doing? This is crazy. Well, y- you guys talk a huge game about how he needs to be getting aggressive when it comes to Russia, and now he's trying to actually be aggressive with the threat of North Korea, I mean, which is it? Are, are the Democrats in favor of constructive dialogue, or are they in favor of talking tough and drawing red lines? Uh, you know, it all depends on the politics, obviously. So this is where we are now. Uh, we've got North Korea, the U.S., looking at each other, staring at each other across the DMZ, literally and figuratively. And people are worried about Guam. I don't think that that's a concern that needs to keep anyone listening to this show up at night. Those of you who may be listening on the island of Guam, I think you're going to be just fine. And that's because as crazy as North Korea may be, or as its leadership may be, uh, they must know that there would be an immediate demand from the American people for uh, a a counterstrike at North Korea for any assault on U.S. forces anywhere that would be a... Truly um, 
awe-inspiring sight. Uh, so I don't think that they have any illusions about that. I'm sure they're up to speed on it. I don't think we're going to war with North Korea. I know that, you know, that you have to always keep in mind that there's the demands of the news cycle. Like I've been telling you, it's it's August, right? So Congress is on vacation. You're getting even more focus on this issue than you would otherwise because there's not the political horse race and the back and forth of the Beltway insiders to keep us thinking about other things. So right now there's all this focus on North Korea, and that means that people are, I think, getting a little ahead of where this really is in terms of the likelihood of conflict. I'm not, um, I'm not uh, concerned that we're about to get hit by North Korea, and I do not think we're about to hit North Korea. Um, but we do need to look at what's happening and understand that this is a problem that is going to, it is just going to get worse. It is not going to get better unless action is taken. And I think the Trump administration has some sense of that. The media, of course, is trying to find ways to turn this into Trump is the problem. It's amazing. We're under, you know, we got a guy with nuclear missiles who is... Or, you know, reportedly with the ability to fire nuclear missiles and whatever it may be, you know, who knows what the truth is at this point. But he certainly has missiles, certainly has nukes. And he's threatening a U- he's threatening U.S. territory. And you get the media focused on how uh, Trump is the problem. Right. How, how Trump is the issue. Um, th- then we get to the uh, panel over there on what is this? Uh, oh, yeah. MSNBC. They say that Trump is ir- irrational like Kim Jong-un. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, everybody. You know, it's disturbing, apart from the fact that he seems to have borrowed the North Korean speechwriters. Now nobody knows what he means. And that means we can have a terrible nuclear potential take. You're also dealing with a very emotional leader. When he's offended... That Which one are you talking about? Well, that, <laughs> yeah. that's my second point. That's, and so that's, a, that's the dangerous thing here, is that you have two very emotional leaders, dare I say borderline irrational, and they both have their their thumb on the nuclear button. Can we, and that's can we just, just take a step back here for a moment? You have people who are paid to go on TV uh, allegedly because they're informed and smart, but at MSNBC they should they should you know people should demand their money back but you have people going on allegedly because they know something and people also at cnn that have been talking about north korea it's it's just shocking who they'll allow to go on tv to talk about this stuff um but then again i mean at cnn sometimes i would get you know i would get uh, silenced by the host so that i could get a lecture on afghanistan from somebody who had never been there unlike me never served there unlike me doesn't know anything about the country unlike me and Probably couldn't even tell you off the top of his or her head where the capital is or, or name name two provinces of Afghanistan before you lecture me on Afghanistan. That would be the fun game to play at CNN because most of the people would have failed it. So uh, you've got MSNBC, though, equating the temperament of the leader of North Korea who had his brother recently assassinated abroad, who presides over prison camps, death camps. And executions for the crime of owning a Bible. You can be executed for owning a Bible in North Korea. They're comparing those two people. How do they expect us to think they have any credibility on anything else? What does it say about the cable news media, all but one channel right now, that you can go on TV and say that and not lose all credibility in the eyes of the audience and in the eyes of the network that's put you on? This is why when Trump says fake news, people cheer. This is why when he says fake news, I'm like, yeah, that's right. It is fake news. He's right. 
Um, you, and then wait, you have another another one of these things. There are people that are even willing to praise at, in some way or, or at least point out that North Korea is being defiant. The North Korean regime responding to President Trump's chilling warning, calling the president senile, saying he was cooped up at the golf course and was clueless about how things are developing. From North Korea, the latest show of defiance, chanting ritual hatred of America. A defiant rebuke by North Korea in a statement calling President Trump's recent comments a load of nonsense, saying the president is a guy bereft of reason. The general called the president's fire and fury warning a load of nonsense. North Korea is showing further defiance to the United States. Thousands of people hit the streets yesterday to protest. North Korea is now using President Trump's fire and fury comments, as well as those new U.N. sanctions to rally its own people. Let me just say what you already know. Let's all just discuss the little secret here, which is somewhat astonishing. The media overall and overwhelmingly agrees with North Korea about President Trump. That's what you really pick up when you hear the way they talk about this. Bereft of reason. You can see a lot of people in newsrooms are like, wow, this this Kim Jong-un guy, he makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Donald Trump is bereft of reason. Yeah, I mean, you can tell that, first of all, they're making comparisons, as I played for you before, between the temperament of these two leaders, and they agree with what Kim Jong-un says about Donald Trump. They agree. They just, they do. You can tell by the way that they set up their, by the way they set up their segments and by the, uh, the, Words they use, the editorial lines they take, they agree with Kim Jong-un about Donald Trump. They can't help themselves. I think that's instructive. I think that's worth us noting for a moment. But back to what really does matter here. You'll, you'll see so much of the policing of tone and so much parsing of every word that Donald Trump says. Locked and loaded, fire and fury, big trouble in North Korea. Uh, which is what Donald Trump just said in the press conference before I, I came on, which, of course, reminds me of one of my favorite movies, uh, the title of one of my favorite movies, Jerry Posture. And any, not that we're aware of. As much as they can get all upset about it, the media can freak out. Policy hasn't changed. And in fact, on a policy level, Trump has done more to bring pressure on North Korea by, by this latest round of sanctions, this agreement that involves Russia and China, than the Obama administration did in eight years. So what do we care about? Tr- you know, Trump, Trump's bluster? Trump said this, he said that? Or what are the results? What makes us safer? What makes for a better policy? I think every Trump voter out there, and I think a lot of Republicans, and I think anybody who's trying to be fair-minded about it, would say that so far Trump has shown more adept handling of North Korea based on the results than anything Obama and his team of so-called geniuses were able to pull together in eight years. And I think this is a version of what we're seeing play out across the board with the Trump administration. They don't like what he says. They don't like how he says it. They don't like him. They don't like the way he dresses. They don't like his wife. They don't like his family. They, you know, all this stuff. Meanwhile, stock market is absolutely kicking butt. Jobs are good. Economy's doing well. Immigration policy makes sense. He's holding Mitch McConnell to account, hoping that, you know, you look at the ledger, you look at what's getting on, what's getting done here, brings in Kelly to clean up the White House. And there's a lot of good stuff happening, but you won't hear about that at all. All you hear about is, oh, Trump, he's so crazy. He's crazy like Kim Jong-un. I mean, that's just, that's irresponsible to say. It's just irresponsible. All right. Um, 
we'll come back. We got a lot. I haven't even set up the rest of the show. I told you we've got somebody joining us from from Ukraine uh, later on in the show. He'll be calling in to tell us about that conflict. There's very interesting stuff going on there. We'll talk about the Google memo, the fallout from that. More on. Uh, well, I got to go into a break here, but stay with me. We've got a lot more. Stay with me. Well, team, it's Friday, Team Buck, and welcome to the Freedom Hut. I feel like I didn't even give you the proper welcome when we started off the show. I was just coming off of a Trump press conference, so I got uh, got distracted for a moment there. Uh, I would just, well, of course, it is uh, Action Movie Quote Friday, so there's that. Action. If it bleeds, we can kill it. Movie. Go to the coast, we'll get together, have a few laughs. Quote free your mind. Fridays. Action movie quote Fridays. So I want to do a little twist on this right now, and that is that you can call in and you can try to best me with an action movie quote off the top of your head if you like, if you dare, if you want to bring it. But I posted last night because Predator was on one of the all-time greats in the genre. It was on like basic cable, which is I have basic cable now. So that's exciting. Um, And it was on and I watched it. And I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to share my my top five action movies. So I did. And here they are in in order, which I know this is a little controversial, but this is what I posted on Facebook. Action movies ranked number one, Die Hard. Number two, Terminator. Number three, Predator. Number four, Aliens and number five under siege. Now I look at this list and I realize as I read that out loud, there's a mistake. I should have put the matrix in the, uh, in the number four slot aliens at number five and under siege. I don't think should have made the top five. So I, I will give you that correction, but here's what I want to know from you. You can call in with either your top five, your top three, or number one action movie of all time. I'm just wondering. what, Or, or if you disagree with my list, what would you have put on there? Um, and we have shortly, I believe, joining us uh, Ben Shapiro uh, of the Daily Wire, the Ben Shapiro Show, uh, various books, columns, column at National Review. And uh, he tweeted out that he thinks that The Fugitive should be on the list. Now, I agree that The Fugitive is a fantastic movie, but I put The Fugitive in the uh, the dr- uh, drama suspense part of the video rental genre. You know, they used to break it down at Blockbuster that way. I don't think The Fugitive technically qualifies as an action movie, but I'm open, I'm open to persuasion on that one. Uh, well, we should have Ben joining here in just a few minutes. Uh, if we assuming we can get him on the line, it's, he's out in California doing his thing. He's probably, you know, getting ready to do battle with uh, Antifa somewhere. But um, and then we'll talk more about the Google firing and all kinds of fun stuff, team. I have a very fun show planned. But eight four four nine hundred buck for those action movie ideas. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. Call in. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Mr. President, what do you mean by military solutions are locked and loaded as it relates to North Korea? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. Uh, We are looking at that very carefully, uh, and uh, I hope that they are going to fully understand the gravity of what I said. And what I said is what I mean. What do you say to your critics who say that your rhetoric is actually raising the tension? Well, you know, my critics are only saying that because it's me. 
If somebody else uttered the exact same words that I uttered, they'd say, what a great statement. What a wonderful statement. What I said is what I mean, is what he said. All right, there we have the president. He just gave a press conference before. What do we think about the week that the president has just had and and also the back and forth with Mitch McConnell? we got Ben Shapiro joining everybody. He is editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show. Ben, thanks so much for calling us. Uh, sure. Thanks for having me. Um, can we start actually with uh, with just your your sense of how the media is treating Trump statements on North Korea versus what the, you know what Trump just said there? I mean, do you think do you think he's got a point? Yeah, I do. I, I think he's absolutely correct. I mean, President Obama said that uh, we would destroy North Korea if they ever tried to attack us using nuclear weapons. President Clinton said the same thing. Uh, George W. said the same thing. Like, there's been a constant refrain from president after president that if you fire something at us, we'll finish you. Uh, so that's that's not unusual. You know, that said, does Trump obviously enjoy the purple rhetoric? Uh, of course he does. So I think it makes a large difference on the international scene. I really don't. And I think the media have an agenda here to make Trump look crazy when there's really nothing particularly crazy going on. Like, I keep saying to everybody, calm down, okay? North Korea doesn't want to fire anything because we'll finish them. And we don't want any fire. We don't want to fire anything because North Korea. We don't want North Korea destroying Seoul or at least killing hundreds of thousands of people in Seoul. So, you know, the the, the chances that this ends in some sort of conflagration are extraordinarily low. Yep. Uh, I don't think that Trump's rhetoric is anything out of the box. So I think that it's, it's like I, there's I, I totally agree. Ben, can I just point out that you know Susan Rice wrote an op-ed in the New York Times earlier this week where she was saying you know people could understand why, given the words coming out of Pyongyang and New Jersey, tensions are so high. Later on in her editorial or whoever wrote it under her byline, uh, she she says that well, if North Korea steps out of line, we're going to annihilate them. I mean, that really is now just parsing. Yeah. When you're saying you're going to annihilate a country if it does something you don't like, saying fire and fury is really no different. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate the alliteration, and I appreciate the sort of Game of Thrones imagery of the fire and fury, and he's going to ride Drogon over to the North Korean side and set them all aflame. But uh, that said, you know, I'm not super worried about any of this. The the only part of Trump's rhetoric that I wish that he'd rein in a little bit is he said this morning, for example, that if Kim Jong-un makes any threats, then then he'll he'll pay for it really, really fast. Well, I mean, Kim is going to continue making threats. He's never going to stop making threats. They've been making continuous threats for 60 years, so... You know, if you're going to make a threat, if the president is going to make a threat, it should be a credible threat. We're not going to nuke North Korea, nor should we, if Kim Jong-un says something dumb, because Kim Jong-un says dumb, threatening things all the time. That's how he gets concessions out of the West. So, um, you know, I, I don't like drawing red lines that aren't actually red lines. But aside from that, you know, Trump can mouth off as much as he wants about how tough and big and strong we are, because bottom line is we are that tough and big and strong. And if they do try anything, we will turn, you know, we will blow them forward into the Stone Age. Totally agree. Uh, but on the Mitch McConnell-Trump uh, spat as it played out this week. Uh, this is another place where I got to say I'm. I mean, look when when he brought Scaramucci in, I'm like I don't know what to say. Everybody, this is a this is a disastrous, a bad idea, and it turned out that was the case, right? And it was fun to talk about the mooch. And I saw Goodfellas a couple of days ago it was on TV, and I'm like, wow, the mooch really does have a ha- have a certain way about him. Uh, but this with Trump and McConnell, people are saying he's being unfair. I'm like, how is it unfair for the president to say that the head of the or the, you know, the the guy who's in charge of the Republican majority in the Senate can't get anything done? And that's a problem to me. That's pretty obvious. I, I'm with Trump on that one, too. Yeah, I, I am, too. I think that his criticisms of Mitch McConnell are totally in line. Um, you know, is it, now there's a difference between is he right and is it smart? Right. Is he right? Yeah, he is. I mean, Mitch McConnell has been ineffective. Is it smart to go after your own Senate Majority Leader publicly without offering any sort of either carrot or stick in order to get anything done? Does it mean anything when at the same time that he's 
you know, complaining about all of this. He's also suggesting that he's going to support Luther Strange in Alabama, who is a McConnell ally. This is my biggest problem with President Trump as far as sort of his threats to members of the Republican Party. He seems to be more angry at McConnell, not for his policy failures, and more for the fact that McConnell sort of dinged him in this little in this little Q and A that he was doing back in Kentucky. So if you were if you were angry at him because he's not getting his policies passed, I'd be all for it. But I think that Trump is more angry at him on personal issues, and the way that manifests could actually be kind of negative for conservatives because you could see a world where Trump says, "Well, McConnell's not doing the job. The Republicans aren't doing the job. You know who might work with me? This guy Chuck Schumer over here on something like infrastructure." And you see him walk across the aisle. So. You know, while I agree with Trump's critique of McConnell, I don't think that, number one, it's useful because I don't think that it's going to make McConnell do anything McConnell doesn't want to do. And number two, I don't know what it, what it you know, kind of bodes for Trump's future behavior. I don't know that it necessarily means that he moves to the right or even attempts to replace McConnell or move against McConnell in a right-wing way. What are conservatives of, of good faith and, and patience in this country supposed to think about the Republican Party right now when it is true what Trump said just before I came on air here and before you called in at a press conference, but they had seven years with Obamacare, and when it, when the when the hour was upon us, they failed. What are we supposed to think? What, what do you tell people when they ask you? I mean, the Republican Party is terrible at its job. <laughs> That's all you can say. Uh, you know, the party is very fragmented. Uh, and this is why, you know, I can put it on Mitch McConnell in large part and Speaker Ryan in large part. But the truth is, the way the system works, the president is supposed to work on this stuff night and day, helping to push things over the finish line. And there, I, I have less sympathy for President Trump. You know, I think that President Trump's involvement in the health care bill and pushing it and crafting it was minimal at best. He fired off a couple of tweets. He made a couple of statements publicly in speeches. And then he spent the last two weeks right before the health care vote ripping into his own attorney general. So... You know, uh, while I while I agree with his critique of McConnell, I don't think that Trump has clean hands in the let's push repeal and replace game. I don't think it was like Trump was was pushing as hard as he possibly could and working night and day to make sure this got done. It seemed more like Trump expected sort of what Grover Norquist suggested, which is that Congress will pass stuff, put it on his desk, and he'll sign it. Well, that's true in the old constitutional sense, but it's not particularly true in the modern political sense where the president... Uh, is the leader of his party and really has to be the driving force behind legislation that gets passed. We're speaking to Ben Shapiro. He's editing, editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. Ben, uh, you spoke to, uh, what, James Damore, right? The guy who got fired from Google? Yes. Yeah. Uh, t- t- what were some of the what were some of the takeaways from your conversation? And and I also just want to get your sense as to whether you think has Google created such a giant self-inflicted dumpster fire in Silicon Valley that things might change or are they just going to continue with business as usual? I mean, I think they're hoping that it blows over. My guess is that they're going to continue with business as usual. And there's such a monster in the market. It's going to be hard to topple them. They're no near competitors. You know, that said, I do think that there is an awakening that's happening where people are looking at YouTube and Google and other major tech companies and saying to themselves, uh, there's some political bias here. These are, these are not, you know, objective sources of search results. Uh, for example, and I had somebody email me today that when they searched the FTSC uh, top 100 CEOs, it was all women's pictures that came up at Google. There are only seven women in the top 100 FTSC CEOs. So there, there are some biased search results that come through Google's algorithms. Uh, and th- those accusations have been around for, for a long time. People being made aware of that is definitely a good thing. Uh, it's also indicative of the level of, of censorship that in, that you know, really flourishes in left left wing bubbles like Hollywood or the media uh, or it, or, in the, or in the tech community because that that memo from James Damore is one of the more mild memos I've ever read regarding the gender gap. I mean, it really is not inflammatory in any way. It has a page and a half dedicated to offering solutions to 
to help close the gender gap by making jobs more palatable to women who may want to spend time with family, for example. Uh, and he got ripped up and down for it anyway, which just demonstrates that the, if the orthodoxy is, uh, is varied from in any way, uh, then the, the heretics must be punished. And right on cue, I saw, at least in Slate, and I, I'm guessing you probably, this came across your radar too, they, they, start have, they start having scientists writing pieces about how, well, science doesn't really settle questions like this necessarily. The, the, the science is not settled on this. And they go, oh, wait, I thought science was the answer to all of our major sociological and other issues. You're telling me that science sometimes is open to debate and discussion? Science is imperfect? Uh, there was one in Slate um, that was saying that the science here was being misused or abused. Yep. And I mean, I think that one of the fascinating things about the left right now is that the left, which proclaimed itself the party of science, has now decided that science is no longer uh, of consequence if it conflicts with their agenda. So if the science suggests that women have less of a preference for going into STEM, into the science, technology, engineering, and math, uh, then that science has to be discarded in favor of the politically correct version of the leftist agenda. And the same thing is true of transgenderism. The same thing is true on abortion. Science takes a backseat to the political agenda for the left, and I think that's becoming clearer and clearer. By the way, Chelsea Manning on the cover of Vogue, I talked about it yesterday, or they, they've taken photos. We've already seen the leaked photos. Uh, are, are we approaching a period here soon, Ben, where uh, heterosexual males who will not espouse their attraction to uh, trans, you know, transsexual males who say they are female, that that's going to be considered bigoted? Because I, I see that coming. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there are already a few people who are saying this, like Riley Dennis is a transgender woman, so he's a man who says he's a woman, uh, and, uh, and he's been saying this. He's been, he's been out there saying, if you're not attracted to uh, transgender individuals, then that is because you have been biased, you are sexist, uh, it's, it's society that has made you this way. Uh, to which I responded, no, actually, it was sort of evolution that made us this way. Like, if, if people were to have sex with, with people who are of the same sex, but thought they were of a different sex, then the species would end pretty quickly. I mean, it turns out that evolution has something to say about sexual attraction and, and the number of people and the kinds of people with whom we with whom we procreate. Ben, where are you on bending the knee on pronoun usage? Do, do you do you refuse to uh, to go along with yeah. this? Because now it's now we're being told it's a matter of being polite, and I am sometimes probably too polite, and I worry that I'm going to get drawn into this. Now, you you still if if you're a biological male, you still go he in the workplace in social settings all the time. Is that right? Yes, that's right. I mean, uh, it's it's one thing for for you to want me to treat you with politeness. It's another thing for you to demand that I engage in, in what is a delusion. You are, you are not uh, of a particular sex just because you say you are of a particular sex, and it is not my obligation to change objective science in order to be polite to you. That's just not something that, that I'm willing to do, and I don't think the entire society ought to engage in that either, especially because there are some actual downsides to this, including the radical rise of parents who think that kids who are gender-confused at age two and three are obviously transgender and therefore need to be treated as members of the opposite sex, transition, hormone-blocked, uh, you know, this this sort of sexual confusion is not uncommon in kids. It's the job of parents to guide them into into you know consonance with their actual genetic sex, if that's at all possible. And pretending wasn't there a story is, earlier this week, Ben, about a transgender camp for kids? I didn't get a chance to talk yeah. about it on the show. I saw the headline. What was that? Yes, yeah, so there's a transgender camp for kids. It's in San Francisco. It's like 60 kids, and uh, they encourage kids to be gender fluid, and they encourage kids to to engage uh, in in the fantasy that they're members of the opposite sex, and they treat them as members of the opposite sex if they so choose. Uh, it said in the article that the, the kids can actually choose a different sex every day if they, if they want to. Uh, that is not only an abdication of parental responsibility 
is the, is the destruction of, of children. It's the destruction of children's innocence. This is not something that children should be left alone to pursue. I have two kids under the age of four. Uh, I think it's not only egregious parenting, I think you're doing a great harm and evil to your child. Uh, if you if you follow the kid's advice on anything, you wouldn't let your kid eat only candy. You wouldn't let your kid not do their homework. You shouldn't let a four-year-old decide what sex the kid is. The kid hasn't even hit puberty and won't do so for another decade. Ben Shapiro is editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. Also, you can download his show, The Ben Shapiro Show, off of iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts. Ben, have a great weekend. Thanks for making the time. Hey, you too. Team, we're going to run into a break. We will be right back. Stay with me. All right, Team Buck, every line is lit. So I like it. And as we take calls, of course, spots will open up. Action Movie Quote Friday, your top five, top three, or even all-time best. Just number one action movie. We will take that here on the show. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. We have uh, Patty in Mississippi on WBUV. Hey, Patty. Hey, Buck. Hey, um, I, I love Ben Shapiro. He's awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, you're talking about Chelsea Manning and that whole thing with this whole transgender deal. And, and they probably are going to be going down that road of, you know, if a guy's not attracted to a transgender woman, there's, you know, he's a problem. Um, but I think it's, it's, you know, I like to look at the, the kind of like the macro level of all this with, because this is definitely a concerted effort by the left when you have, okay, there are no gender differences, whether it's between men and women, between it's transgenders or whatnot. You know, there are no differences between people, you know, whatsoever, and unless you get to, like, the guy you had on the other day with the uh, affirmative action, you know, where you have the, the, the Asian population that are being discriminated against, you know, because they actually do really well, you know, in school and on tests. But I think this, you know, this whole thing is, you know, just – you know, by the left in general, is just to undermine universal truth, you know, to undermine the the societal norms that we have and basically breaking all that down and trying to, you know, to what they like to say, you know, level the playing field in a way to kind of like really softening the ground, you know, for the encroachment of socialism and ultimately communism. I'm with you. I, mean, I think at the end we're we're going to, you know. I mean, it's. You know, well, I mean, it's, that's maybe down the road. But yeah. I mean, okay. Really I'm just saying. Because, yeah. I, I just don't want to get too far ahead. But your 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 point about undermining universal truth. I mean, that is really the. If you were to try to distill, if you were to try to uh, take the unadulterated essence of progressivism, I think that's really what it is. Um, because more moral relativism is the creed, if you can say there's such a thing, of progressivism. And so it's just a question of what the argument is today, what power I can use now, what power I can acquire tomorrow. And there are no universal truths. There are no um, there is no natural law. And therefore, anything is permissible. Right. I mean, this is well, uh, everything's permissible and all guidance comes from the state. Yes, you know, because you well, know, the state because, the, the state because, just becomes a manifestation of the ideology, right? Because there's no God, exactly. there's no individual rights, there's just whatever, there's just power and the moment. And exactly, but this, you know, because this has all been brewing up, you know, since you know probably the prior to the '60s when the whole infiltration of the university system and the education system in general with the Department of Education to you know kind of this widespread thing. I actually my degree is in elementary ed, and you know, I could see it all through school, just just the the warming in of all this, you know, the multiculturalism and just just 
everything about it, you know, is, you know, was, is leaning and sending everybody towards, you know, more socialism. And, and a lot of people are, aren't willing, they don't want to accept it, but it's, it's what's happening. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the socialists in this country, there was the American Communist Party and there were a lot of open socialists. And, and there's this this gap in the history we're taught in schools because the assumption is that it just sort of went away. And then we had Democrats and Republicans and they kind of want the same things. I mean, the, the socialist impulse was just ingested by the Democrat Party. And that's why you now have these progressive leftists. Uh, in the, I mean, you've got you know, Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist, right? So this is now becoming more obvious than ever before. But those who would have been socialists in this country in the 1920s and 1930s, 1940s, they're just Democrats today. So they're just part of a different party. But Patty, great call. Shields high. Thank you for calling in from uh, Mississippi's WBUV. Uh, I'm not, you know, I still haven't ever been to Mississippi. I'm going to go check it out. Um, maybe I'll go hang out, you know, go say hi to everybody at WBUV. That'd be nice. Uh, lines, uh, we got some spots, or uh, we got a spot open now if you want to call in. We got a bunch of other lines lit. We'll get to those calls in just a moment. Uh, I'll give you some thoughts on a little more of the uh, the hot takes on the Google memo firing. That was a big story, obviously, this week. But also, the New York Times asks a real question. What is a bigger threat, and I, I, maybe I'll address this on the other side of the break, a bigger threat to Guam, which is now being threatened by a madman with missiles and nukes, uh, North Korea or climate change? Uh, This is a game that you could play now, and it's very tough to know where Democrats, you know, what is more likely? You will, uh, you know, die of one of the three major diseases that kill people in old age or climate change. I mean, you know, you start to play the numbers on this with the statistics, and I I don't know what Democrats think, you know. What's more dangerous to you? Uh, You know, slipping in the bathtub or climate change because uh, for guam apparently even though it's being threatened by a madman in north korea with uh, missiles that can go very very far oh it's climate change welcome back team buck lines are lit here in the hut we're in the midst of a freestyle friday uh, action movie quotes in effect in fact top five or top whatever you got action movies uh, i'm really in the mood because i watched predator last night maybe for the 300th time love that movie fantastic movie uh, we got Mark in North Carolina at WPTI. What's up, Mark? Hey, Buck. It's Mark. Can you hear me? I, I can, sir. We can all hear you. Thanks for calling in. Outstanding. Well, I'm in Florida for WFLA, but uh, hopefully that doesn't just bust out Mark in North Carolina. But anywho, the reason, uh, first I want to say that uh, New York EPA just called, and they're going to send you a bill for your complaint the other day on your noise. So. For that. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's yeah. going to be big too. There's probably some overtime involved. Uh, you know, there's a holiday yeah, charge. I'm sure. I'm sure it's like the, you know, yeah, it, it's like the Polynesian New Year or something. Or you know, there's something. <laughs> of course, you're taking it well. Listen, um, before I get into my point, I just want to say, um, I, I heard your last segment last night about alcoholism, and it was very poignant. And uh, I'm not even going to get into my ex, and just mirrored kind of what you said. But I've reevaluated uh, everything about my life with with my child and, and drinking. So uh, thank you for that. Well, and thank thank you, sir. And and that's you know I, I I consider you all my friends, and so I, I speak to you as such. And I, I just I just feel like I I thought that I was look. I mean, I'm a I'm a former CIA officer. I've done all this training. I think I know a lot of stuff. And it it snuck up on me and and uh, kicked me right in the face. And it was you know. Wow. So I, I hope people that 
I hope people had a chance to listen to it last night because it's not what people think it is. It's not some, you know, old grouchy guy slouched over a bar at 10 a.m. drinking a bottle of scotch. It's much more. Which I am, which I am, but I understand, yes. Yeah, right. but you know what yeah. I'm saying. It's it's much more insidious. It's much more sly and insidious in many cases than that. But anyway, sorry, so you were saying, go ahead. No, no, no. You're absolutely right, and I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, they say for every one person that calls, there's 10 that, that won't call. So I'm sure there are many people out there that appreciate it. Having said that, I've got to take issue with your movie list, man. Come on, you're showing your age. Now, you said the uh, – I didn't even rent videos, but you said there are different categories, kind of a, like a library. Yeah, well, you I remember you remember the- back in the old days, like the 90s, you know, when people used to ride around on horses and the telegraph wire and stuff. <laughs> you know, but you remember, like, Blockbuster, Blockbuster Video or your local – I mean, the, even before Blockbuster, yeah. there were just local video rental places, and that was a yeah, successful yeah. business. And they usually – not ever, but they usually had it broken down into, you know, there was the horror section, action section, form. Foreign films, come on, who really went into that section? But, you know, th- those were different sections, yeah. and I just feel like that's, well, if you're going to talk action movie... Films and we had to watch them. Yeah. I'm sorry, what do you say? The girlfriends went into foreign films, and we were stuck watching them. Yeah, and we got to say, oh yeah, it was so romantic. I love how that French ending, there was yeah. really no ending, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, let me get to my point, <clears throat> if I may. Sir. Yes, sir. Because I'm sure time is valuable to all of us. Anyway... Action films, if that's what the label's going to be. You, come on, man. Apocalypse Now? How many out there are listening to us right now are saying, yes, Apocalypse Now? Full Metal Jacket and Platoon? How could you not? Le- how- I, will, I will give you, you Apocalypse Now. I will give you Apocalypse Now is a, is a fantastic film. But I think of that more as a war film than an action film. See, I think that there are different genres. Like, I, I don't. I think that uh, you know, Saving Private Ryan and uh, yeah. The Thin Red Line. These are great movies, but those are those are war films. Those are not necessarily action movies. Like, th- those are trying to show the realities of of combat and warfare and telling those stories. They're not guys smoking cigars with one liners, running around shirtless, firing M sixties in each hand. You know what I'm saying? It's that's action movies. It's different. <laughs> Yes, sir. But, I I, but I'm parsing. I, I agree. I'm parsing. Okay. You know, Ben Ben Shapiro, who was on before, said that he thought the fugitive should be on the list, and I just I just don't know. I mean, you I, call I that drama. You call that drama? I believe. Uh, yeah, drama suspense, which is a category. Look, the categorizations they blend. Somebody called me out for not putting Tombstone on the list, and I'll say that Tombstone's a phenomenal movie. Yeah. But that's a western. Yeah, yeah. That's a western. Come on. Oh man, come on, semantics. Come on. <laughs> well, there anyway. we go, man. Look. Hey. You keep it up. Have a great weekend. Thank you for your time. And I've got a personal story about Trump that if you if I can get through on your lines, I know they're they're backed up all the time. If I can get through, uh, I'd love to tell you a personal story about Trump one time. Another time, speaking. absolutely. Another time. Give us a ring. Love to hear it, man. Shields high, Mark. Have a great weekend. Thank you for calling in. Yeah. Uh, we have uh, Rick in Florida on the iHeart app. What's up, Rick? Hey, Buck Shields high. Shields high. Hey, I'm, I'm original squad, and I generally do. Oh, gee, all right. Oh, yeah. 
and I'm actually wearing an OG Commie Bear T-shirt at the moment. So <laughs> nice, man. Those are collectors' items. That was the that was the cuddlier Commie Bear. We I people have been asked me when because like if you're if you weren't someone listening to me before I came over to America now, uh, people don't necessarily know Commie Bear is. They will. We've been working on bringing them back. It's basically I just have to find a version of the Soviet national anthem that we can actually use on this show, and then I can bring Commie Bear back. But even something as minor as that, believe it or not, has been kind of a holdup. But th- those T-shirts are collector's items. Well, that's why I hand wash them. There you go. Um, <laughs> oh, excuse Whoa, me. Whoa, deep breath, buddy. Take drink, drink a little water. You know, I, I'll tell you, I was actually on. I was on Megyn Kelly's show once at Fox, and she and she was always, I will say this, always very kind to me, and, and was very supportive of me early on in my career. You know, bringing me on to Fox, and I'll never forget. She had. And I could see it, and she was giving me the head signal to keep talking because she had like had a little water or something, and she had a coughing fit that, I mean, she almost doubled over, and they kept looking at me, and they kept telling me, and the, the producers were saying, you know, giving me the talk signal, like, keep talking, keep talking, because the camera was on me. But I was stuck between the gallant impulse to, like, pat her on the back and be like, are you okay? And to just keep talking, like, everything was fine. It was very awkward. And eventually they had to go to commercial, but she was totally, she was choked up. So, anyway, you were saying, sir... What? I, I appreciate you covering covering for me there. Exactly. Um, I, two things. One's a movie quote, and uh, interesting with the conversation with Mark about what he considers an action movie. I consider it closer to your definition, definition and I would agree with you on three of your original five, uh, four of your amended five that you said earlier in the show. Uh, I've never seen Alien and don't ever want to. Aliens, not like, Alien. Different movie, but yeah. Oh, okay. I, I don't I no, I don't like scary creature thingies. I just don't do that. But this one actually it probably wouldn't be top five, but this comes from one of my top ten for sure. And I have got two quotes for you, so if you can't get on the first one, I'll give you the second one. It may or may not help you, but it's a good one too. So here we go. Sam, whenever there is any doubt, there is no doubt. That's the first thing they teach you. Vincent, who taught you? Sam, I don't remember. That's the second thing they teach you. Huh. And I don't know, hit the buzzer, man. I'm out. I don't know what that is. Oh, we're we're uh, we're a little we're slow on the buzzer, but the buzzer got hit. There we go. What is that? Well, the second the second line is, "You ever kill anybody?" Sam. Well, I hurt somebody's feelings once. It's Ronin with Bobby. Ah, I saw that once. I did see it once a long time ago. I, I vaguely remember. Is it a very good movie? Excellent movie. I know I Ronin have, is a wandering samurai, right? Samurai without a master? Right, yeah. And the, the thing about it is it's, it's enigmatic, and it doesn't quite fit the diehard, you know, umbrella of, of action movies. But I, I can watch that movie over and over and over again and pick out things. Plus, it has, I believe, the best non-CGI car chase scene ever filmed, better than Bullet. Which, which for years was the high water. I, I will also say that it came up in the discussion, the social media discussion last night of, of action movies, that some folks said they thought the best uh, gun battle of all time, or the best gun fight scene, was the uh, the bank robber shootout in Heat. I think that's I think that's a strong a strong case can be made. That's a really exceptional sequence. I'll have to go back and watch that. I don't think I've seen that. Oh, you forever. haven't seen Heat with De Niro and Pacino? And oh my God. It's it's a very it's good movie, but the the main shootout scene is I mean, they, they did it 
you know, they did it so well that unfortunately later on, a couple of guys basically tried to do that and rob a bank by just being completely, uh, you know, up armored with all kinds of, uh, you know, Kevlar. And, and they had, um, uh, I don't think they had, I think they had uh, AR-15s or it might have been, it might have been, a, I don't know, I think it was an AR-15. But anyway, they had, they had semi-automatic rifles, a lot of magazines, and a lot of body armor. And the cops, they actually managed to pin the cops down because all these LAPD cops showed up and all they had were, were uh, you know, 9mm sidearms and uh, some 12-gauge shotguns. But it wasn't enough. So, anyway. Yeah, yeah you should, but Heat, Heat was considered yeah. to be like a, a, it was like a copycat for that later on, that later on bank robbery. The Hollywood bank robbery or something, it's called something like that. Hollywood bank robbery shootout. Okay, I will check it out. And, and to your point that you were talking about uh, last half hour, last hour, about the press, um, it was interesting. You were on with Michael Pelka this morning, and I heard that phone call. And you talked about a book. It's called The Perfect Race or The, the, the Greatest The race. Cleanest Race by, by, cleanest yeah, by race. Myers. Yeah, it's, it's about North Korea. I, I've mentioned it on this show a few times as well. And I heard an interview earlier this week on another station with – with the, the guy who wrote that book. And I also heard Glenn's interview with another guy who wrote about North Korea as well. And in listening to those two, two interviews, it's clear, I and mean, you said this in the opening of, the sh- of your show tonight, that the people who are sitting in the pundit chairs on TV in makeup have no clue of what North Korea is all about and, and, and are, have no clue as to, you know, the president's reaction to it. And I think that, that, you know, the, the question has been raised, where do we get our news from when the news is no longer with any credibility? Another another one of your former compatriots at The Blaze to, uh, said something recently that the the purpose of broadcast news, radio and television, is to fill time. That's the number one job. And when you put that as the first filter that everything comes through, then you go, of course, you know, they're going to come up with the silliest people and the silliest things to fill this time and to be sensational and to drive the ratings. But if people understood what uh, the writer of, of that book and the other book that I'd mentioned, the two interviews I've heard this week, it, it gives a much clearer picture. And, and then the idea that, that Kim Jong-un is a, is a crazy lunatic, probably strung out on some opiate somewhere, becomes a lot less viable. And there is a method to this madness, and it's, megalomaniacal. Wow. Yeah. I got the word out. But, and, and that's where the real understanding, I believe, is because they, they were backing their statements up with facts. And it's not this hyperbolic, you know, bloviating about, well, Kim is blah, blah, blah. blah. It's, it, we have to go to the original sources. And I view those two Authors as being original. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, CNN, CNN is putting people on to talk about the North Korea, the North Korea showdown, who don't know the difference between an ICBM and a DVR. I mean, it's really, it's really <laughs> appalling. Uh, so, and, and MSNBC has been doing the same thing. Um, anyway, my friend, great call. Good to talk to you. Shields high and uh, enjoy that Comedy Bear T-shirt and check out the new one. It's in black. Bucksaxon.com slash store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, check it out, man. Uh, all right, team, we are going to – I'm enjoying the call so much today. We're, we're kind of – we'll take some more. Uh, look, it's, op- it's, uh, it's open to whatever you want here. It's Freestyle Friday, so let's do it. Um, we will hit some calls. We'll talk about some more stuff. I've got someone joining from Ukraine to tell us about the war in eastern Ukraine, Russia fighting against a U.S. ally that – 
uh, doesn't get much attention at all. And uh, then I'll just give you some thoughts on Google and what I call neutral speak. Um, so a lot of show coming. Be right back. We got Mike in Kansas on the iHeart app. Hey, Mike. Hi, Buck. Nice to hear your voice. And kind of one-on-one here. Absolutely. Um, yeah, most. I just wanted to to compliment you, Buck. The uh, I, I first heard you when you were subbing for Rush. You know, back in December, maybe something like that. Yes, and sir. Then I, and then I started searching and found you on. You're, you know, the previous venue that you were on before you got where you're at now, and and thought, wow, this this young man knows a lot. So anyway, thank you. you get great, you get great guests. You know, uh, Mr. Gorka last night. Uh, haven't heard from Miss Donati for a while. Look forward to that again someday. We will. No, Emily, Emily, and I are in are in frequent contact. Yeah. Good, good. And Andrew McCarthy, you know, you just you have one good lineup. You know, and it feels like. Feels like you're in touch with the, the same people that, that Mr. Trump is in touch with. To so, <laughs> thank you very much, man. I, I'm glad you appreciate the show and the guests, and thank you for uh, finding me. And if you don't mind, man, please spread the, please spread the word. Let's get some other Kansas folks. If they can't listen on a station, iHeart app. It couldn't yeah. be any easier. It's a great way to listen in. I do spread. I do spread. Thank I, you so I, much, sir. Uh, sir, I appreciate it. All the time, and I'll continue to. Thank so, you very much, Mike. I won't take any more of your time and let you get back to some important stuff. No, this was very important. Thank you. You're making my day. I'm going to go into the weekend happy. Shields high. Thanks, Mike. Um, Jason in Mississippi, WB. Oh, yeah, WBUV. What's up, Jason? Hey, Buck. How you doing? I'm good, sir. Well, listen, I've only got two things for you. Uh, just first one, i just like to add a couple of movies to your top action movies list. Uh, one of them would have to be Desperado with Antonio Banderas. You know, I, I, I love that movie. I've seen that movie so many. I actually owned it on VHS or no, on DVD in college. I can't remember now. Anyway, yeah, I owned it. I've seen it a million times. Yeah, that one's incredible. And then the other one would have to be The Boondock Saints. And if you haven't seen it, it's fantastic. I haven't seen it. I've heard there's a lot of profanity, but I know, seriously, right now the Freedom Hunt team is looking at me like unacceptable. They're giving me the, wow, it's like we don't even know you face. So, okay, apparently I have to see Boondock Saints. Yeah, it'll change your life. And the last thing, uh, you know, you were talking about Guam. You know, what what were some of the... What do people think is going to happen first? I think you're actually ruling out one of our very smart congressmen, um, Democrat from Georgia. I believe it was in 2010. Hank Johnson was more concerned that Guam was in danger of tipping over. I so, do vaguely remember that that gaffe. Yeah. I, yeah. So nuclear weapons aside and global warming, what we really have to worry about is the buoyancy of Guam, according to the Democrats. So, you know, that's another Another thing to consider. Fair enough, man. Shields high. Have a great weekend, Jason. Thank you. All right, you too. We got John up in Alaska on KENI. Hey, John. Hey, for movies, I have to say Red Dawn. That's my favorite. Great movie. Wolverines. And uh, I knew the guy who made the chain gun in Predator. That was Terry Schmidt. And what a deal he had to go through to get that thing to work for that movie. Wait, you, so you knew the guy that made the prop minigun that Jesse Ventura yep. carried around? Yep. Really? He was a hell of a guy. He, he could uh, give him. He, he's a, he was a true MacGyver. But anyway, I wanted to get back to uh, the EMP and the, the problems with that. I've been so concerned about it since uh, January of this year. I've been contacting the uh, Trump team, then the Trump White House, 
and I put in a proposal for the wall building it as a Faraday cage. As a what? Faraday cage. You're familiar with that, aren't you? No. What is that? Only thing to stop an EMP. Basically, if you wanted to design the cheapest Faraday cage on Earth, you would take a metal trash can, fill it with foam, have it have something suspended like a transistor radio in there, put the lid on, then use a metal tape to go around the edges. Right, do you have? I mean, I, I ask this respectfully. I'm not. I'm not trying to be trying to be silly or, or snarky. Do you have a background in, in science, or you seem very interested in EMPs, which are a pretty um, specific yes, area I, of? Yes, I do. But I have even more than that. I have my uncle who is head of the uh, nuclear uh, commission in the Marshall Islands. Okay. Discussed how when they fired off the blast, every transformer and Madro went out. Cars driving their points froze, and uh, I was also interested in uh, they they did a study on Prince Eugen, which is in Kwajalein Lagoon. That was that uh, Bikini Bikini uh, Atoll. Yeah, Bikini Atoll blast. They couldn't sink it. The other thing that they were bothered by is the Germans had made it electromagnetic pulse proof. They were working on electromagnetic pulse weapon, and they did have one working during World War II. Huh. And, and that, the guns would still operate. Everything would still work. They couldn't sink it, so finally they dragged it over into Kwajalein Lagoon. The Americans said, we're going to use this um, ship-to-ship missile and sink it with that. Filled the whole different, open up all the watertight compartments, put in a huge... Uh, C4 um, placement in the bow and in the stern, and when the missile hit... we got 20 seconds, sir. Okay. Any, anyway, the last thing is, I purchased, when uh, this Soviet Union collapsed, a T-54 tank that was set up for electromagnetic pulse. This was... Uh, they were taking their older tanks because... All right, this is fascinating, but I, I got to go, my friend. I'm sorry. We're going to a hard break. We'll be right back. All right, Barry in Mississippi, what's going on? Listen on the iHeart app, my friend. How are you? I'm great, Buck. How are you? I'm good. Thanks Thank for calling in. Sure thing. Hey, Buck, back to health care if we can. Sure. Uh, a word we have not heard yet, or hardly, no, not yet at all, the word lobbyist. You know, Haley, uh, Security is a loser. Barber is likely the most powerful Republican in D.C. And we have three Republicans who are uh, standing against repeal when there's no change to Medicaid, there's no change to the subsidies, there was no change to the insurer regulations, but yet they said, well, this is going to harm my state, and I don't see how. And so what if, what if it's uh, lobbyist pressure that's keeping those three uh, from approving. What if they're providing the cover for a number of other Republicans? Okay, you guys, you're not up for re-election in 18. You know, maybe McCain, you'll never run again. So you guys vote no, and the rest of us will be safe. I, I, I just worry or believe that, that uh, you know, the most powerful people in Washington are not in office. They're not working for the government. They're working for health care firms. If you look at Barber's, uh, well, in case you didn't know, his uh, his lobbyist firm is BGR Group, uh, and if you look at them, they say you know nonpartisan lobbying. And then if you look up their client list, you'll see about 100 or 200 healthcare organizations uh, in their 2016 and 2017 client list. So 
you know, I heard that hospitals are making a ton of money because of Obamacare. My guess would be the indigents. They're not get, now getting paid for indigents, but it used to have to be they would absorb it. Uh, due well, to ho- hospitals love Obamacare, by the way. That should, everyone yeah, should know that. Big yeah. hospitals, the big hospital systems, they love Obamacare. So. Yeah, and, and I couldn't figure out why until I realized, yeah, they're probably getting paid now for the indigents. They used to have to eat it. Now they can file Medicaid. That's right. Because of the Medicaid expansion, they're getting a lot more money. Yeah, and so, you know, the country, especially D.C., runs on money, not on honor or anything else that we would like. And and so, you know, enough money in the right place, and we're stuck with the darn uh Mandate. Well, I think that's uh, when we talk about the swamp. When we talk about the swamp area, I think a lot of people hear that and they think it's it's the uh, the permanent bureaucracy in D.C. It's the federal agencies. It's the Democrats. It's the media. You know, people think of different things. Part of the swamp is there is the uh, the very sizable chunk of the Republican Party that is completely at the beck and call of the donor class, which is just another way of saying of special interests, of lobbyists, and of money. Uh, th- that's, exactly. you know, of, of money in politics. I mean, I'm not somebody who thinks that we should try to get money out of politics, but I am somebody who thinks that elected representatives should be held to account for the principles they espouse and the promises that they make. And you know, if, if we don't do that, well, then we're all just being fools who are getting, uh, who are getting, uh, you know, tricked by these people that, for example, say they're going to repeal Obamacare and don't. On your point about that, by the way, I think you're right. My guess is that there are more Republicans who actually were unwilling to, uh, or rather, they only voted for repeal because they knew that it would not pass because they knew that there were a few who were holdouts. I think that's very possible. Right. right. And, and uh, we just, we just, oh, I had an argument with somebody once about lobbyists. They said, oh, the lobbyists are tearing up the country. Well, you know, if the government wasn't giving away so much money, well, we wouldn't have so many lobbyists in line trying to get it. And, and that's the biggest problem with the government spending is that, uh, we're not. We're out of control. That the government is just a money factory now to to the most powerful people in the country, and we're just pawns filling up the, the bowl for them to go feed at. Well, the, so, you know, anyway. all these problems, Barry, uh, Barry that you're outlining, I, I think this this very much feeds into the perception that people had across the country that we needed something disruptive to the system, Trump. Uh, to try and change exactly. things, because anybody who's going to try to work from within this system would immediately be co-opted, corrupted, and and neutered. It would become meaningless, right? So, and I think that's why people give Trump such a wide berth. You know, at, at the end of all this, at the end of his three years or four years of his first term, you know, I'm going to be looking at what's been done and make my decision. But in the meantime, I'm also willing to give the guy a lot of leeway because he is coming up against all this stuff. And, you know, we've seen the way it was in the past. You know, it, it would have been very interesting, and I know this is, I'm kind of taking us down a, a whole separate rabbit hole here, Barry. Very interesting to have I'm seen what, what a Bush, uh, George W. Bush presidency would have been like without the war on terror 9-11 uh you know very in favor of amnesty uh you know medicare part d big spending i mean there there was a lot of big government tendencies in that administration yeah and so when there's chaos in dc i say this is what real change looks like this is what we wanted trump said he was going to upset the operation and he's doing a damn good job of it and so this chaos this is what we wanted, just like you said. We want the chaos because this is what real overthrow of Washington corruption looks like. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know Rush has talked about uh, Operation Chaos in the past. Uh, right. Trump, is, Trump is the agent of chaos in D.C., and it's, it's right. very, very interesting to watch it play out. Thanks for calling in, Barry. Shields high, and have a great weekend. 
Uh, Bradley in Arizona, iHeart app. What's up, Bradley? Uh, how are you, Buck? I'm good. Thanks for the call. Uh, first of all, Freestyle Friday, it's great. These are some great calls. I enjoy it. And second thing, I really appreciate uh, you kind of bearing your soul yesterday with, uh, well, you know, with alcohol and how it's affected your life. It, it, uh, it's, it's very nice to hear somebody being very truthful and honest about, uh, about their feelings. But the reason I Thank called you. was to dovetail off of Ben Shapiro and how uh, the transgender evolution, I guess, how that's become such a pillar within the liberal democratic slice of life. But my question is, and it's more of a rhetorical question, what about the Rachel Dolezals? What about those people, the trans race or whatever they're called? I mean, what have they been forgotten about? Because the transgender crowd, the Democrats open, you know, welcome them with open arms. But it seems like Rachel Dolezal and Yes, outwardly I'm Caucasian, but inside I feel like a black woman. I mean, you know, you how come she was scorned and, uh, oh, Manning, um, oh... But Bradley Mann, Chelsea Manning, and, and Caitlyn Jenner. You know, you, you uh, Bradley, I, a while back, talked about a story that touched on exactly this issue, so I'll, I'll revisit it uh, with you for just a moment, and, and that is the Journal of Feminist Philosophy, known as Hypatia for a female mathematician, uh, not a very well-known one, but there was a Journal of Feminist Philosophy where a philosophy professor wrote about the exactly what you're saying, which is that by the same premise of transgenderism, one can in fact be transracial. In fact, there's no way to prove that someone does not earnestly and honestly believe that he or she is of a different race. And in fact, she didn't go into this, but scientifically speaking, if you were to trace all of our genetic backgrounds far enough, you could make a case that there are, well, first of all, there are people that have, and anytime you ask somebody who spent enough time like doing their ancestry background stuff, they'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm 5% Native American and, you know, three, you know, 10% this and 20% that, you know, my, my girlfriend is is half Mexican and half Jewish and a whole bunch of other stuff thrown in there, too, that I can't even remember. So, you know, when when you when you look at the argument, though, for transracialism and transgenderism, they line up almost exactly. And in fact, the transgender argument has to be a psychological argument. And this is where a lot of the time they the, the big proponents of this run into trouble because they will say and I've seen this. Oh, well, what about uh, what about people who have. Uh, hermaphroditic condition, who have uh, both, and pardon me, guys, we're getting a little bit into the, uh, you know, into the the nether regions and biology here, but that's a real thing that can happen. But if it's based on biology, well, then the only people who can be transgender have that condition. In fact, it's based entirely, it has to be as a movement on psychology, on emotion, on state of mind, and if it has no physical, if transgenderism has no physical characteristics, meaning it's not about what you got downstairs, it's about what you think upstairs, then transracialism has to be given the same credibility and respect on the left. That was the argument that she made, and Bradley it was like she wrote a memo about diversity at Google. I mean, people went nuts, and they went nuts because she was telling, because she was making the, she was making an argument that was sound. 
so so by that uh, by that logic, even though my entire ancestry is from Europe, deep inside I feel like a elderly Asian guy. Can I can I pass that one off? Oh, that's uh, that's another place where I think that there's a lot of. That's where the argument goes with with your your mental age versus your physical age, right? If you feel like you're a different age, you know, if I really feel like I'm 65, should I be able to get Medicare? But I really feel like people would say, well, no, of course not. And and I bring that up because that is immediately tied to benefits, costs, government action, and the racial issue is in part so sensitive. Because of what Antonin Scalia referred to, may rest in peace, as the racial entitlement state. So, for example, if somebody views themselves as actually black or actually Hispanic, right, if they believe they're transracial, then they should be able to apply to diversity programs in college and in hiring without anyone questioning that. And then the whole system falls apart because now you can have people of any background, ethnicity or race claiming the most advantageous race for the purposes of hiring and admissions. And so that's why it's a big problem, right? Because they they see that the racial entitlement state and diversity programs and the identity politics that are the foundation of the modern Democratic Party, it all starts to fall apart if you allow for transracialism. So then really what it comes down to is one costs money, and one is benign for money. And so the one that is going to cost the U.S. government and, and all the entities that suffer from that, we're, we're, going to, we're not going to embrace that because it's too costly, but transgender, that's less costly, so we'll go ahead and... Well, I, I, think, I, I, actually, I actually think you're, you're, you're analyzing it a little further than you have to, because what, what it really comes down to is that the left is hypocritical on this issue. And that's why when that woman, that, that, that unknown professor, wrote in, in Hypatia that this is the argument for one, this is the argument for the other, they line up, everyone got so angry because th- th- she was right, or because rather the argument is right. And yes, I mean, your, your point about the cost to it, I think that factors in as well. But at a more basic level, it's just that the left likes what it likes, and it's trying to promote certain ideas for the purpose of largely for silencing the other side and acquiring political power. And so, yeah, I mean, transracialism is every is every bit as real from the perspective of psychology as transgenderism. Um, And and if it's not, somebody would have to explain how it's not, meaning that someone has to tell me why there are people who believe who identify as a different race. And and also, I should note, this even comes up with people who are or uh, of of multiple races in terms of their background, they get to identify with one or the other. So there's actually a much greater, uh, much greater leeway for transracialism based on on biology than there is for transgenderism. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, there are people that have two yeah. ethnic backgrounds, and they can identify with one or the so, other, or both. So I'm going to. Anyway, sorry, we, we, we got into this one. Bradley, I've actually I've got to run into a break, man. Uh, but I thank you. I thank you for the, the kind and thoughtful call. Shield tie and have a great weekend. Uh, like I said, got to run into a break here. We'll be right back. Bart in South Carolina. Is this is this the Bart old school Bart? It is, Buck. Wow. It's been a while, my friend. How are you? Bart is also original squad from way back when. 
uh, way back when, yeah. Also, uh, a, one of the first Trump supporters on your radio show. I know, you I saw it all coming. Bart is one of those who's like, I saw it coming from the beginning. Ha ha, he did. Yeah, but uh, you know what? Even though I was a big Trump supporter back then, I still am now. I'm calling because I'm a little worried. Just wanted to get your thoughts about this because uh, I see our situation vis-a-vis North Korea as potentially very dangerous. Uh, It's similar in many ways to uh, what was happening in the Pacific just prior to World War II. North Korea is very much militaristic like Japan. Even though they're not expansionistic, they uh, threaten, bribe, and extort from their neighbors. It could potentially be very destructive, even far more so than Japan ever was. And uh, it worries me because a war against North Korea that doesn't go well or gets Russia or China involved in it in in some way could spell disaster politically back home. And now, do you... How do you see the the risks versus the benefits of a tough sta- uh, stance uh, on North Korea? Well, I, I, everything you said is true and in the realm of possibility, right? So there's I that's all you all the threats and concerns you outlined. Those are real. I agree. We need to be aware of them and we need to be prepared for those possibilities. But I do think it is a, a remote possibility at this point because the. Uh, the U.S. military response to a North Korean military strike, let's call it that, a real military strike against us or one of our allies uh, would be, I mean, and this is, it's hard to conceptualize this, but I, I do think that we would effectively end the North Korean state, and, and that would mean a lot of people would die. Um, a lot of people that have nothing to do with Kim Jong-un, a lot of people that have never fired, you know, fired a shot in anger at anybody, including anyone from the U.S. or our allies. So we all want to avoid that. Um, I think the tough stance creates the pressure and the environment where you can hope for and hope, I know, it's a weak word here because I don't know what else to say because we tried this in Iraq and then we ended up invading. We're trying it in Iran. It's not going to work there, my friends. And now we're trying it at some other level in North Korea. Hope for regime change. Regime change is, you know, I, I've actually studied authoritarian dictatorships on my own. It's something I've read a lot about. And overwhelmingly, uh, regime change does not come externally. It does not come from an invasion. If you go back in history of the last couple of hundred years, where does regime change come from? It comes from within, and it usually comes from a, uh, a, a essentially contested power within the upper uh, upper circles of whoever's already in charge, right? So if there is regime change in North Korea, it would most likely be some other member of the North Korean military who knocks off Kim Jong-un, right? And, and now he's in charge. How much better is he going to be? Who knows? So uh, we're waiting uh, there. But this is where you fall into the there are no good options, Bart. And I think that's what you're illustrating with your question. And there really aren't any good options. Yeah, I, you know, it's um, I know it's it's bad when presidents do this because people talk about Obama doing things just after he got reelected or just prior to uh, a reelection to ride kind of the wave. But I think if Trump is considering any kind of action against North Korea or ratcheting up the saber rattling or whatever, I hope that he does wait until late in his first uh, term so that any eventual victory would be uh, would would ride him into the next term, potentially. Right. Yeah. That's a political game or until at the beginning of his second term. 
All right, man. We'll see. Bart, hey, man, it was great. It was great to uh, great to hear from you. Bart's one of my old school peeps. I actually met Bart when I gave a speech down in South Carolina, too. Bart, Shields High, man. Tell the family I said hi, and thank you so much for calling in. Uh, it's great when I have uh, original Team Buck squad representing here on the airwaves. Yeah, man, I've been doing this. Gosh, I don't know. I've, I've been doing radio now for f- four or five years. It's been a while. Uh, so... Where was I? Oh, we've got uh, someone calling in. Someone. We've got our our guest, Nolan Peterson, coming up here. He's calling in from Ukraine. The war in eastern Ukraine with Russia that you are not being told about. It matters a lot. It matters for what's going on with Putin. We're going to talk about that in the next hour. Uh, He'll be joining us. Stay with me. You are now entering the Freedom Hub Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. All right, team, we often talk about what's going on with Russia, what's going on with Ukraine, and what the foreign policy of the Trump administration should be vis-a-vis those two countries. In fact, when we discuss Putin's aggression, Ukraine, right after Syria, is usually the first place that people name. Well, what's it like in that part of the world right now? We have somebody who is literally there. He's been uh, eight days embedded on the front lines of the war in Ukraine. He's a foreign correspondent for the Daily Signal and a former special operations pilot, a combat veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan. Nolan Peterson of the Daily Signal calls us now from Ukraine. Thanks so much, Nolan. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, okay, let's just start with, give us an update on what's going on with the, the war in Ukraine. I know you've been writing about this. Right. Well, the war has been going on for more than three years now. It's uh, the way it currently is, is a, a static war along about a 250 mile long series of trenches and forts in eastern Ukraine. Uh, I've been out there count. I don't, couple dozen times over the last three years and it's it's a shocking war honestly to see and especially to know that is going on in europe now in 2017 it's very reminiscent uh of what you might see in pictures of world war one uh, trenches dug into the earth daily artillery bombardments every day still rocket attacks snipers uh small unit incursions across no man's land it's it's a it's a real war. And I think that's one part of this story that just doesn't transmit back to both the United States and Europe. Now, who are uh, on the two large. sides of this conflict, Nolan, uh, and, and who's supporting them? So the, there's the Ukrainian side, so the Ukrainian government troops supported by um, lots of volunteer soldiers, uh, although now the volunteer battalions have all been incorporated into Ukraine's National Guard. Uh, their enemies, their their opponents, is a combined force of both uh, separatists, Ukrainian separatists, and Russian regulars. About 34,000 separatists and about 3,000 uh, Russian soldiers fighting within Ukraine against Ukrainian troops. I mean, that's a really substantial, by insurgency numbers, that's really substantial, especially when you add in Russian regulars who have uh, advanced combat training. Right, and well... The more shocking part of this is not just the manpower, but the fact that the separatists, the combined Russian separatist forces, have 675 tanks, of which about 478 are battle-ready. And that's more tanks than all of the Western European countries combined. 
They have 1,300 armored personnel carriers, 81 artillery pieces, 95 multiple launch rocket systems like the Grad. So basically, this separatist army, which Russia says is compri comprises coal miners and factory workers, they have, equipment-wise, one of the largest armies in Europe. We're speaking to Nolan Peterson right now. He's a former uh, foreign correspondent for the Daily Signal, former special operations pilot. He's been embedded on the front lines of the war in Ukraine, which, as he's telling us right now, is ongoing. And Nolan, from, from what you are describing to me, Russia has engaged in a covert invasion of Ukraine. I don't really hear it put that way. I don't hear uh, people up on the screens on TV and the nightly news talking about that. But when you're putting armor pieces and regular soldiers in another country that's trying to uh, help a separatist movement, that is a, at least a, a partially, you could call it a limited incursion, but that's a covert invasion. And absolutely. I mean, that's one of the biggest myths about this war and one of the greatest failures of the media in covering this war is is the the continuance of the notion that this is a civil war. This war was created by Russia, Russian special forces, Russian military intelligence operatives started this war in 2014 after Ukraine overthrew its uh, former pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych. This war is a Russian project. This war is fought with Russian equipment. There's Russian troops who, uh, who control these separatist forces. Uh, Russian propaganda has contributed to the recruitment of separatists, as well as the, the recruitment of foreign fighters from within Russia and around the world to support the separatists. So this, this is a Russian invasion. This is not a civil war. This is not a separatist insurgency. It's a real war. And the Ukrainian troops, with whom I've spent a lot of time over the past few years, they universally say that they are fighting for their country's freedom and they are fighting to repel a Russian invasion which threatens their sovereignty. Uh, Nolan, tell me about what the the, the level of, of casualties uh, have been like, because we don't hear about it out here in, in, in the West. We don't hear about it in America really much at all. We certainly don't hear there's an ongoing war and trench warfare and the things that you've seen with your own eyes as you've spent days out there on the front lines in eastern Ukraine. Uh, what are the levels of casualties we're talking about here? And, and also, what are your thoughts on the recent moves within the U.S. to possibly provide arms to the Ukrainian side in this conflict to help them expel the separatists and Russian invaders? Well, so far, the war has killed almost 10,100 Ukrainians. Uh, about a third of those deaths have occurred after the February 2015 ceasefire was signed. So the, the rate or the intensity of the war has gone down quite a bit in the last two years after the ceasefire was signed. But there is still almost daily um, casualties. Just on Tuesday, three Ukrainian soldiers were killed in combat. And at least almost every single day, you know, between three, six, ten Ukrainian soldiers are wounded. Civilians are still dying every day. Uh, sometimes they're caught in the crossfire or they die from mines. Uh, so it, it's a it's a static war. The soldiers hardly ever see who they're actually shooting at because it's mainly fought by artillery, uh, bombardments and snipers. But there's still active combat going on every day. And it's combat fought with heavy weapons, tanks. Things that, from my perspective as a former special operations pilot uh, with experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, it's pretty shocking to see tanks shooting at each other in 2017 in Europe. Uh, the Ukrainian soldiers 
of course, welcome the possibility of, of American weapons on the battlefield, particularly the Javelin anti-tank uh, missile would be extremely helpful to them as they try to repel uh, the combined Russian separatist tanks. Um, but Ukraine has a lot of weapons. Ukraine is within the, is among the world's top 10 weapons exporting nations now. Um, so in large part, the presence of U.S. weapons would be a game changer as far as the morale of the Ukrainian troops. And it would send a very strong message to Russia that, that we won't tolerate Russia invading another country, a country that chose in 2014 to have a democracy, to be part of the West, to turn toward Europe and to turn away uh, from Russia's sphere of influence. We're speaking to Nolan Peterson of The Daily Signal. He's a former special operations pilot. He's coming to us from Kiev, as he's told me. It is actually Kiev, if you want to take the Ukrainian pronunciation, the capital of Ukraine. So he's giving us an on-the-ground, frontline perspective about that conflict. also want to ask you, Nolan, about recent NATO exercises and what's going on up in the Baltic. That's something that I think has been overshadowed in the news media here because of the prospect of a nuclear exchange with North Korea, but things are getting a little uh, a little uneasy, a little testy up in the Baltic region and with NATO. What's happening? Right. Well, I think one part of the Ukraine war that people uh, have sort of ignored is how it has completely reshuffled the geopolitical situation in Eastern Europe. Uh, the Baltic states and Poland, they all see Russia as an existential threat to them. And so they're preparing for a possible war with Russia. This summer, Russia is holding military exercises in Belarus called the Zapad exercises. And NATO estimates that as many as 100,000 Russian troops could be moving into the area as part of, as part of these exercises. And of course, the invasion of Crimea, the invasion of the Donbass, the southeastern territory of Ukraine, which is a war zone now, those were all precipitated under the guise of military exercises in 2014. So the Baltics and Poland are definitely on edge uh, with these massive exercises going on. America, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Asian pivot that uh, Obama said we were going to make um, during his presidency. But really, America has made an Eastern European pivot uh, since the war in Ukraine began. Uh, overall, we've got about 60,000 troops in Europe now. Uh, but we've got an additional 7,000 who are there under the European Reassurance Initiative, which is basically our our retort, if you want to call it that, to Russia's aggression in Ukraine. Now we've got a series of just a, lots of exercises going on throughout the Baltics and Poland. Uh, we've got armored, uh, NATO has now got uh, armored brigades rotating throughout the Baltics and Poland. Uh, the U.S. has an armored presence in Poland, which we didn't have prior to the war in Ukraine. Um, and I just recently, as a pilot, this is interesting, but I was on an Air Force KC-135 flight over the Baltic Sea recently, and uh, we had some B-52 and B-1 bombers uh, come in formation with the tanker, and we were intercepted by a Russian Su-27 over the Baltic Sea flying within international airspace. And as a former Air Force pilot, it, it sent a chill down my spine to see a a Russian warplane on the tail of a U.S. B-52. And I think it really underscored for me where we're at. And, you know, the greatest risk we run now is that some miscalculation with all these exercises going on could turn into 
actual shooting war between the U.S. and Russia. What are you hearing from from those on the ground uh, in you know your sources and government officials, anyone and everyone you're talking to in Ukraine and in the Baltics about whether Vladimir Putin uh, and and the Kremlin are uh, emboldened? Uh, are they? Do they feel like this is this is becoming increasingly dangerous for them? Do they feel like the status quo is? somewhat static and that uh, they don't really know? And what are you hearing in terms of their concern level and the, the, uh, the, the prospect that they, that they hold for whether there'll actually be an armed conflict with Russia in the next few years? Well, in Ukraine, they... Well, they yeah, I mean, in Ukraine, obviously, they're, they're in the, the middle of it. But I, I'm t- talk to me about the, the, the Baltics. Well, in the Baltics, they're, you know, historically, they, they look back at the... the you know, almost a century that they spent in the Soviet Union, they look at that as an occupation, and they are all very worried that Russia could could do something crazy. I think most people in this region think that what Russia is doing is is probably guided by the internal politics of Russia. So if Vladimir Putin's um, his popularity goes down in Russia, the surest way for him to rebound that popularity is to engage in some sort of foreign adventure because in the eyes of the Russian people, it makes him look like a hero. So if there is unrest within Russia, that's when I think you're really going to see people getting nervous because, you know, his, his popularity rating just went through the roof uh, after he took Crimea and launched the war in Ukraine and then after Syria as well. So I think, People definitely keep an eye. They keep an eye toward the domestic situation in Russia. And when he needs a win, he's going to find it with some sort of military uh, adventure. Well, to, to that end, I mean, there's ongoing conflict in Ukraine, but are there concerns that that could be dramatically escalated by the Russians? Oh, in Ukraine, it's a constant worry that, that what's going on. I mean, there is an active shooting war going on now. But the but the you know, the greater worry is that 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 static front line, that trench warfare could precipitate into a full on invasion. And that's, that could happen easily. You know, these things, wars are the most unpredictable enterprise in human civilization. You you can't control it once it begins. And so in Ukraine, there is the perpetual worry that this could turn into something much worse. And then when you have, you know, we have Poland and the Baltic states, and they don't like the fact that Ukraine is fighting a war with Russia because they know that that war, if it expands, if it gets out of control, is on their doorstep. One more for you, Nolan. Um, what is the sense about what is the sense you're hearing again in this part of the world, Ukraine, the Baltics, Eastern Europe, uh, when it comes to President Trump, his rhetoric, his relationship with Russia and the U.S. foreign policy of this administration thus far? Well, I think. When one thing that is, was very clear to me when I arrived in 2014 is that the Ukrainians were very frustrated with President Obama's continued uh, def- you know, his continued uh, delay or refusal to send uh, lethal weapons to Ukraine, and so now with this proposal on Trump's uh, desk, there is hope that this this proposal might go through, and they, the Ukrainians really believe that U.S. weapons wouldn't necessarily necessarily turn the tide of battle on a tactical level, but it would it would be a complete morale game changer for both the country and for the soldiers. And they've been fighting this war now for three years. And most of those soldiers, they really believe they're fighting this war for America. 
They believe that they're they're keeping the Russian the Russian army at bay in Ukraine so that Europe does not have to deal with this war. So that America doesn't have to fight this war for them at a later date. Um, but That's as far as Trump specifically, I have to say that Ukrainians were were very happy to see that Trump proposed a 41 percent increase in the funds for the European Reassurance Initiative, which is basically America sending more troops, equipment and and rebuilding infrastructure in Eastern Europe to support NATO's presence in the, the Baltics and Poland. So that was a strong message by Trump. And uh, it was received by Ukraine that America is continuing to invest in deterring Russia, as well as reassuring our Eastern NATO allies in Ukraine that we're here to help. There is also a U.S. Army training mission in Western Ukraine, which is ongoing. And that has also sent a strong message to the Ukrainians that we're here and invested in their defense. Nolan, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, he's in uh, Kiev, Ukraine right now. Kiev, as we say here. Um, he is the Daily Daily Signal's foreign correspondent out there. DailySignal.com for his latest. Nolan, great work. Thank you very much, sir, for joining us. Thank you for your service. And uh, be safe out there, all right? Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Team, we're going to hit a quick break. We'll be right back. Stay with me. That was fascinating stuff from Nolan Peterson. You know, he's he's out there. I mean, this is a guy who is so low key, and I, I've I've been following his work. When I say he's on the front lines, he's out there in eastern Ukraine, uh, flak vest, helmet on. I mean, look, he's a former special operations pilot, so you know this guy knows how to how to operate in this world and and understands how to. Um, be close to be close to the gunfire, but to keep himself safe. Um, he is out there looking at what's going on, and there's so little coverage of this. And it's amazing to me that the media's focus on Russia is always so much about what's going on uh, with the what happened. They say in the election and the hacking, uh, Russia has invaded a, a country that we are obligated under. I mean, not treaty, but under uh, a written agreement, under contract, the Budapest Memorandum, to defend. And I'm not saying we should rush in there and fight against Russia, but I think we should at least be aware of what's going on here. It's just getting no coverage at all. And he says it's trench warfare out there. You've got over 10,000 people dead, in, or, or 10,000 casualties at least, 10,000 casualties in the conflict. I mean, this this is... Uh, it's astonishing to me. All right, so I, I wanted to just take some time to focus on an issue that not enough people are reporting on at all. So there you go. From the front lines there in Ukraine. And he was calling us at like midnight his time, so it was very nice of him to stay up. Um, we are going to uh, talk to him about uh, what I call neutral speak in the office. Hello, how are you? I don't want to get fired, so I'll talk to you this way. We'll get into that. Stay with me. That was fascinating stuff from Nolan Peterson. You know, he's he's out there. I mean, this is a guy who is so low key, and I, I've I've been following his work. When I say he's on the front lines, he's out there in eastern Ukraine, uh, flak vest, helmet on. I mean, like he's a former special operations pilot, so you know this guy knows how to how to operate in this world and and understands how to. Um, be close to be close to the gunfire, but to keep himself safe. Um, he is out there looking at what's going on, and there's so little coverage of this. And it's amazing to me that the media's focus on Russia is always so much about what's going on uh, with the what happened. They say in the election and the hacking, uh, Russia has invaded a, a country that we are obligated under. I mean, not treaty, but under uh, a written agreement, under contract, the Budapest Memorandum, to defend. And I'm not saying we should rush in there and fight against Russia, but I think we should at least be aware of what's going on here. It's just getting no coverage at all. And he says it's trench warfare out there. You've got over 10,000 people 
dead or, or 10,000 casualties at least, 10,000 casualties in the conflict. I mean, this this is uh, it's astonishing to me. All right, so I, I wanted to just take some time to focus on an issue that not enough people are reporting on at all. So there you go. From the front lines there in Ukraine. And he was calling us at like midnight his time, so it was very nice of him to stay up. Um, we are going to uh, talk to him about uh, what I call neutral speak in the office. Hello, how are you? I don't want to get fired, so I'll talk to you this way. We'll get into that. Stay with me. I don't like to get too much into the media gossip and the headlines that are out there about different media people. Some of you will keep up with this stuff and others have a lot of other things on your mind. Uh, But I can say this, given what's happened at Google and also some of the recent some of the recent uh, departures, shall we say, from major perches in the news media, from from big platforms that have happened over the last six months, and then there may be some more that are coming in the next few days. Given all that's happened with that, um, I have to say I really resent that there are people who are so reckless, who have been given uh, such prominence by the decision makers at some of these different outlets and different channels and then they just act like morons and it's not even just that I am annoyed because this is a very tough business I mean I I try not to complain to you too much about I really just hope to give you some insight into what it is to be in the media because when people reach out to me and I often get asked this and people who are former military former federal government will reach out and say hey you know how would how do I do what you do? And I always tell them, look, if you if you are supporting a family and you have a mortgage, I do not recommend this at all. Uh, And I really mean that Uh, if it's just you and you can handle lean times and you can handle uncertainty and stress and unfairness and uh, and just a really nasty Game of Thrones style corporate environment. Well, and you love media and you love commentary. Sure. But those are the usually stipulations I put on it. But in that world, given how hard it is to actually get to a place where you're you're successful or you're I don't I don't mean successful like O'Reilly successful or, uh, you know, I don't know, um, Dan Rather successful or Katie Couric successful. You know, I just mean paying your bills and being in this industry and and doing what you love. Uh, Once you get to even that point, uh, I'm shocked to see how some people just all of a sudden it's like they turn into different people and they are reckless and they destroy their families and they do all this really dumb stuff. But it also, so it bothers me on that level, but it also bothers me when it just filters into or or it adds to, it piles on to one of the big problems that I see. And this is what the Google firing over that diversity memo I think that's why it struck such a nerve. I mean, that was the second biggest story this whole week other than possible nuclear war with North Korea, right? Which I will tell you I think is overstated, but not completely out of the realm of possibility. But the Google memo was such a big story because, as I've been saying to you, wherever you work or wherever your kids go to school, or you cannot be in this country now and be free of these progressive orthodoxies or the progressive orthodoxy if you want to encapsulate it all into one that tells you what are acceptable political positions what you can say how you can say it how you speak to people and what the hierarchy of victimization and hierarchy of power is in the modern corporate environment 
And so it's turned into a situation where, and I notice myself even doing this uh, with colleagues at different media networks when I talk to them, and unless they're unless they're someone that I really trust and they're a friend, you end up speaking in this. You know, they used to they used to talk about news speak. You know, Orwell would um, in 1984. It's the uh, acceptable vocabulary and verbiage that's supposed to limit freedom of thought. And it is all part of the propaganda. It's this, and this is why 1984. I wrote recently when I, there was a Twitter uh, question out there that I answered about five favorite books. For those of you who are wondering what, and it was off the top of your head, so I didn't give it much. I didn't give it much thought. I didn't get in. It just was the, well, the first ones that came to mind, and it was uh, uh, 1984 uh, Massey's biography of Peter the Great. Um, I'm actually trying to read it so I don't forget. See, I did it off the top of my head. I don't even remember what I wrote. Oh, I have the best action movies. I'll get to that in a second. Uh, Massey's Autobiography, Peter the Great, 1984, The Last Lion, Bonfire of the Vanities, and Witness. Those were the books that I put. 1984, though, is, is a must-must-read. Uh, I don't think uh, that's a book that you, you have to read. I mean, it's you know, there's like the Bible and a couple of other books, and like 1984 is right up there um, in terms of you must read it. Uh, but they have newspeak, which is a form of speaking that's meant to be part of the propaganda. And the office environment in America, I think you have, uh, you know, neutral speak. Um, and that's not a good thing. And it's the way that if you want to avoid any possibility of offense, and if you want to avo- avoid any possibility of firing, if you want to stay away from the uh, HR department and the diversity thought police, you just learn to speak in this very, uh, uh, this way that is bereft of real connection. It's very formal, very mechanical, very, how was your day? My day was fine. All right, let's get to work. Let's do this now. Let's have a discussion. I find that the speech patterns among people in the office who are not friends, who are not close, are a little more cautious and robotic than they used to be in the past. I think people are much less likely now than they were 10 years ago to crack a joke. I think people are much less likely now than they were five years ago to share their thoughts on the day's events or what's going on in the world around them, unless they believe that they are surrounded by like-minded progressives. But I think that in general, as a rule, especially if you're a conservative, you are being boxed in and you know it. You're not allowed to tell people what you think. You're not allowed to... Uh, share your thoughts and express yourself. Uh, look, there's, of course, responsible and irresponsible office behavior. And this is part of the problem is that, you know, a guy saying, you know, hey, toots, you know, like like your short dress today. You know, you know, that's not cool. That's inappropriate. But because that's not OK, doesn't mean, hey, how you doing? You know, oh, you look great. How's everything going? Oh, what do you mean? What do you mean? I look great. And this is not new. That whole political correctness culture really came into effect in the uh, in the 80s and, and hit a kind of a peak in the 90s. But now it's it, with, with social media and the shaming component and the echo chamber of it. It's gotten even worse, I think. It's worse than it's ever been. And so you have neutral speak now. You have to find ways to communicate in an office setting, in an office environment, such that you are, it's such that it's incapable for anyone to claim offense from what you're saying so they can go to HR and complain about you. I have heard stories about people getting fired from different, getting fired, losing their job. I mean, that's really tough. It's humiliating. It's obviously creates for a lot of people tremendous economic pressure right away. 
Uh, it's a mark on your record. I mean, getting fired is not fun. And people get fired for comments sometimes that I say, really? I mean, a firing for that? So I think that these people who are in elevated positions, going back to my initial premise, and who are making a ton of money and have a lot of visibility, for them to act like jerks just makes it worse for all the rest of us. Because it means that now there is a sense that this is an epidemic, this is a plague, that sexist or xenophobic or racist or Islamophobic or transphobic, insensitive speech in any, in any place, but particularly in the workplace, needs to be policed. And that means now that we walk around and I feel like the every corporate office in America now is its own little totalitarian police state when it comes to the First Amendment, because you just don't know who's going to get offended. You just don't know who's going to decide that they don't like you and they want to even the score somehow or they want to cause a scene because their work isn't good enough and they're looking for an excuse and something that will make them unfireable if they go file a formal complaint. And so what we're left with is neutral speak. Hello. Good to talk to you. Let us do our work today. I hope that tomorrow's work also goes well. I will see you later. I will ask you no personal questions. I will make no normal human commentary. I know it sounds ridiculous, guys, but this is what's happening. And that's why it's happening across the country. And that's why I think the Google memo is such a big story. Because we're all getting, well, at least everybody who's not a progressive, getting really sick of it. All right, we'll uh, close out the show. We'll be right back. Well, team, I just wanted to update you on everything that's been going on with my move into my own little Freedom Hut. Uh, I've, I meant to post a photo last night of it, but I have been searing meat left and right because, one, I love meat, which is something you would know from listening to the show. Uh, but also, I finally have a kitchen that has burners that work and room to actually do some cooking. And I love cooking. I, and I and some of you are going to make fun of me for this, too. And, you know, oh, you wouldn't make fun of me for searing meat because it's obviously amazing. And it's what every good American should be doing whenever they get the chance. Uh, but I have enough room now to lay out a yoga mat. And so that's right. I'm thinking about doing a little yoga, you know, because I'm, I'm a guy who likes to expand his mind and also would like to stop worrying about throwing his back out when he gets out of bed in the morning or having a pinched nerve in his neck from constantly staring at screens. So I'll let you know how that goes. But I, the change now is that I actually ha I have enough room in my New York City apartment to have a mat on the ground, So I, which not a big one, but just a mat. Before, I really didn't have the space for it. So that should kind of tell you uh, what it was like. Um, somebody told me on a Facebook message, and, and I do read those messages. So anytime you have a thought about the show, you want to share. If you have a segment idea, by the way, if you... If there's some, if you're like Buck, I just really want a deep dive on the history of the original assassins, for example. And I would say, well, I mean, of course, I'll do that. And also read the Bernard Lewis book, The Assassins, gives you the history of the assassins. Um, but if you have any segment ideas, anything that you want in this show, uh, it's important to me that, it, that those of you who uh, do me the honor of listening and, and being my, my radio family and being... Um, supporters of what I'm doing here in the Freedom Hut feel like I'm taking into account your thoughts and your and so that's why I'm always trying to at least read if not respond to everything on Facebook and it's just facebook.com slash Buck Sexton you can send me messages there and and I very much appreciate it when you do I, I sometimes get not just ideas about topics but even people will send me a story they say hey have you covered this and I'll end up covering it on the show um, so if you'd like to use Twitter I'm on Twitter too Buck Sexton but a lot of I think much more uh, 
likely that you'll be on Facebook than on than on Twitter. So uh, that's oh, so back to the apartments. Yeah, I might I might actually start doing a little yoga. I've decided. Molly has been talking to me. She says she's willing to do it with me, so I won't feel you know like oh gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. That first day syndrome for whether it was when I started doing CrossFit or any number of uh, activities in recent years, you know, never really goes away when you walk into a place and it's your first day and you, you don't really know, you, you don't really know like where the water cooler is, where the bathrooms are, where are you supposed to just sort of stand and wait, you know, if you're in the way. First day syndrome is, is something that we all go through for you know, so many in so many different ways. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I might do a little yoga. I might start taking some yoga class. That's right. I'm trying to stretch. I'll let you know how that goes. Give you some updates on that. Oh, but on the meat searing, by the way, I, uh, I got some sirloin, some ground sirloin, and I got my, uh, my pan, my cast iron. And I do agree. Those of you who are cast iron snobs, you're like, you do not cook steak on a simple frying pan. You cook it on a cast iron. I think you are correct. It is a much better way to do it. But I seared my burger, and it was great. But I had read from a few chefs. I'm actually, I actually watch a lot of cooking videos. I watch workout videos and cooking videos. Those are the, those are the things that I teach myself via the, the Internet. Uh, but one of them took some uh, butter and just worked some herbs into it. So you have herbed butter and said, once you've seared both sides and you think you've got about three or four minutes left of cooking in that cast iron, Put a piece of herbed butter on top of your burger, and I and I you know I felt a little bit like that's cheating. It's kind of like taking the melted cheese option, which for burgers is great, but you know you can melt cheese on pretty much anything, and it's going to taste pretty good. You know you can just just melt some cheese on it, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's a pretty good dish. Uh, I felt like it was cheating to have my herbed butter on my seared burger. I'm going to tell you right now, those of you listening, this may be the most valuable information I give you all week. It's amazing. Use just really good. Uh, salted or unsalted up to you but some really good creamy butter and you put it on top of that burger and as it melts into it you're just gonna be so happy you're gonna be so happy and if you get the proper sort of brown uh, you know golden brown crust on the sides of that burger and the butter melts into a little bit this look there's there's reasons why we all get up out of bed every morning I gotta tell you I'm already looking forward to the next the next time I get to sear a really good burger and uh, I'm, I'm gonna throw butter on it I don't care if it's cheating a little bit and to tell you the full truth here and nothing but the truth I even put some truffled cheese on it at the very end too. So I, I went, I went hard last night. Like I went after it. You know, I was not messing around. Uh, but this is just enjoying my new space and having some. Oh, if you have res- if you have recipes for me, by the way, that you think uh, if you have a se- not just a whole recipe, but if you have a secret for a simple dish, like I've told people, I'm going to let you know this right now. My secret for why why are my scrambled eggs better than 99% of the scrambled eggs out there? It's very simple. Instead of trying to adjust the heat, because you'll just cook them too quickly, you have to move the pan on and off the flame at different stages in the cooking process. And you've got to be very attentive. Overcooking eggs can happen in the blink of an eye. You've got to move that pan on and off the heat. Move it to a burner that is not on and do whatever, do whatever you've got to do, including even just letting it cool down a little bit while you mix in whatever you're mixing in. Or So that's the, that's the secret. If you have any amazing tips like that, but only for things that... I'm actually going to eat, you know, so keep that tofu and soy stuff, saitan, you know, save that for save that for the Huffington Post hosts. That, that's not how I roll here. Uh, so with that, I'm looking at this weekend. I'm going to try to be doing some some cooking. I might even uh, 
I might even get a slow cooker. That's right. I might get a slow cooker, everybody. I'm looking forward to trying to dabble in that because I really want to have braised meats as part of my repertoire of what I can cook. Uh, I hope you have a great weekend planned, whether it's barbecuing or just chilling out. I mean, obviously, we're in August here, and I know a lot of people get to take some time off, hang with the family. Maybe you're going to be doing a little traveling. You know, really enjoy it. Uh, the older I get, the more I feel like uh, enjoyment is an active process. I used to think it was passive, but uh, rest can be passive, but true joy, true enjoyment, I feel like you ha- is, is a more active process because you have to allow yourself to enjoy it. You have to shut off the phone, stop the work emails, stop stressing about those bills. Stop, you know, it, it actually becomes something that you, you have to be engaged in. You, you have to be engaged in enjoying yourself uh, in some way, this is just this is what I find. I don't know if you agree or not, but you have to make an, not an effort, but you have to consciously allow yourself to have fun and allow yourself to, because otherwise you'll just be staring at your phone, thinking about work and stressing about you know your aunt Ethel and how she wants you to visit more and whatever, right? So I, I hope you really allow yourself to recharge over the weekend. We're gonna have a lot of stuff to talk about next week in the hut. I already got lots of cool ideas planned for the show. Um, please do download the show. I, I know I, I keep repeating this, but it's because our numbers are going up, but they're only going up because of you. We don't have an ad campaign. I'm not on a cable network where, you know, they could put anybody or anything on TV and people will watch it. This show grows because you, my beloved listeners, uh, listen and you appreciate what I do and you appreciate. And I hope it comes across that every day I do this show, it's my whole day is spent thinking about the show, really. With, you know, I do take a break to eat and maybe I'll take a break to do yoga once a week now. But no, really, every day I do this show, uh, that's my, my primary concern for the day is how do, I, how do I put forward the best show possible for the people who uh, are kind enough to give me their time and who are such an important part of my life. And so y- you, I believe, appreciate that. And that's why you tell people, you share it with friends, you share it with family. That's how we grow. Also, BuckSaxon.com, we put stories up there and show information. You can buy T-shirts at BuckSaxon.com slash store. And on the uh, iTunes, BuckSax with America Now, that's what you need for the podcast. Have a fantastic weekend, everybody. Really have some fun, all right? Your homework for the weekend is have a good time. Monday, I'll see you back in the Freedom Hut. Same time, same place. Shields high.